Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I was 20 and I was studying overseas halfway around the world and I, I got a phone call um, right at the end of that year of studies. But basically, um, both of my parents were killed in a car accident. And it happened out of the blue. Um, when they died, you know, needless to say, my whole life flipped upside down. Um, it wasn't just how do I rebuild my family, but it was how do I deal with my grief and anxiety? What do I do about my career? All of a sudden, I've got to be self-sufficient. How do I take care of myself? Like, like everything just melted. And it led to a, a very sort of rational, irrational fear that I didn't have long to live either and that any one of us could be knocked off tomorrow, which candidly is true. But I began to really live that experience almost at a cellular level. And even though I had good health and lots of energy and I was only 20, I had this very, very existential sense of the fragility of life, but also the fact that we're all on borrowed time. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. April, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your work by way of your publicist who told me about your new book, Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. And I remember going and reading about your story and I was thinking to myself, this is an absolute hell yes when I started to dig into it. Um, so I wanted to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that influenced and shaped who you've become and what you ended up doing with your life? Oh, what a wonderful kickoff question. Let's dive in. Um, so my parents were both educators and um, my dad was my rock and my champion and like two peas in a pod. We totally got each other. Um, my mom had lots of challenges. It was not easy. So I'm going to focus on, well, they both taught me many, many things about life. But my dad was a cultural geographer, meaning that he studied the migratory patterns of people and plants and animals and it was pretty cool. I grew up, um, wasn't, didn't make a lot of money or anything, but this love of diversity, this love of how people connected with places and built cultures and 
ideas transported from one way to, from one place to the other and all of this sense of interconnectedness. And so my dad, one of the things he taught me many things, but one that I hold dear is just the fundamental um, integrity, equality, dignity of humans, and that every human has an interesting story to tell. And in particular, that the more different someone was from you, whether it was the language they spoke or how they looked or the food they ate or whatever, the more different someone was from you, that meant the more interesting they were to get to know. And so he would always be like, you know, when I left for school, he'd be like, why would you hang out with people who look like you and talk like you and eat like you? And, you know, he's like, those are fine, fine people. Spend time with them, too. But like, you know what that is like. Go find the person who's most different from you and get to know them. And that is something just that not just love of diversity, but a real advocacy of it and a real enthusiasm for it. And that bled directly into everything from my love of travel and globe trotting and exploring to really far flung ends of the earth to the career decisions I made to how I seek out to build um, friendships, community, et cetera. And, you know, more broadly, how I see the world today. Mm. You know, one of the things that we've had happen, I think, uh, as a unfortunate byproduct of the Internet over the last you know, probably four or five years is just rampant confirmation bias where People, you know, read things that confirm their existing beliefs. They surround themselves with people who believe the same things they do or just like them. And obviously, this mm. has led to a great deal of division in society, particularly here in the United States. Why do you think that the perspective that your dad gave you is not more prevalent? And how do we make that more prevalent uh, in society as a whole? Oh, well, you know, what's interesting is that <laughs> as a kid, I'm five, six, seven years old. And pretty much this is the Kool-Aid I'm drinking every day, right? It's over the breakfast table. It's how we um, spend our free time. It's, you know, it's this diversity, diversity, diversity. Seek out different things and different people. And also that it doesn't have to be halfway around the world, that there are many different kinds of people living all around you every day, right? So I grew up assuming, kind of thinking like, well, this is what all kids are taught, right? This just happens to be my version. But this is, you know, I thought what I was experiencing was normal or the norm, the mainstream. And then it really was when I got um, particularly to college where I realized, wow, I was, I was very, very lucky. Um, this is not the daily diet of most people. And that to me was a real wake up to start thinking exactly along the lines that you're talking about. So to answer the question, I mean, I think there are a few different ways we could look at this. One is very much what is the environment in which you're raised? What are the the values that are instilled? What are the things that you're taught are important? And teaching something like every person has fundamental dignity and integrity and different people are super interesting for different reasons with different life experiences, that's not rocket science to teach, right? And that doesn't even require that you yourself have experienced it. That just requires emphasizing and talking about and exploring and being open to these ideas and doing so with either your children or young people or older people too. I mean, it's not age specific. It's just that I think when you learn and have that kind of immersion young, it sticks with you. I didn't know anything different. And I came to realize just how, you know, both valuable, invaluable, if you will, that kind of upbringing is. So a piece of it is I don't want to call it just parenting because lots of people can be parents. Lots of people can care about young people. Lots of people can nurture and mentor and all of that. 
It's about what are the choices we make about the conversations we have and the things we prioritize. So there's a piece, though, that's around that kind of the the connective tissue, if you will, that binds us together as as individuals, as cultures, and what are the values and norms that are are ingrained within that. Having a value that diversity is our strength, that can be baked into society or a culture. But it takes, you know, it takes, I don't want to say just effort. It it takes a decision to do that. It takes it takes bringing this topic up time and again, day after day, and not just talking about it, going and exploring it, which again, you can do in your own neighborhood. Um, there's not a single place on earth. Certain places are more homogeneous, we could say, but there's diversity of life experience everywhere. Um, you know, somebody who's healthy, getting to know the reality of somebody who has had chronic um, illness their whole life. That is a very simple but profound example of seeing diversity, young and old, different walks of life, different jobs, different, you know, people who have been through hardship and tragedy. That all of that is all around us in any community you go to. It does take some effort to seek it out. But I think it starts with that, those very basic like acknowledgements of what really matters and what kinds of conversations do we want to, do we want to spark? And do we want to enable others to be able to participate in and facilitate? No. What is the responsibility of political leaders and media creators in transforming this conversation? Mm. If I had the answer to this, <laughs> we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. I would be on, you know, some bus somewhere sort of doing a, a campaign around exactly this. This is, I think, one of the questions of our time. Um, what do, well, I think to some degree, politicians and media, there's a shared responsibility. It's not unique to one's profession. But then I think there are some um, responsibilities that that are unique, given the seat you're sitting in, or, you know, the place you're standing in the and the, the power that you have. Um, I would like to think that all politicians and all media creators have a responsibility to bring people closer together rather than polarize them further. I would like to think that we could craft conversations. And again, whether that's a political debate or whether that's an article or an op-ed, we could craft conversations that are designed to help people understand different perspectives and understand one another's stories and be, be able to develop a more common understanding that, again, it's the classic I may not agree with your opinions, but I still can respect you as a person. That's the piece I feel like we're losing rather than deliberately stoking conversations, debates, and or media content that its sole purpose is to divide. Its sole purpose is to attack. Its sole purpose is to otherize, if you will, and then demonize that other. So at a very basic level, I would say, you know, it's, it's that. Um, I think, yeah, let me, let me pause there and just say that that's where we begin. Um, how do we have these conversations that again, it's well, the footnote, I suppose I would add, and, and I see this, you know, in my research and my writing and my travels and time living in many different cultures over my life. Um, that whole sense of like you, you on the surface, you don't agree with somebody's story. You don't agree with their opinion there. And then, and then you label them as a bad person, right? 
Um, and I think we're seeing this in the U.S. as well as it is happening most definitely around the world. There's this notion, though, that like you just make that kind of judgment. And one thing that I find again and again is if you actually have the ability, and this is the hard part, it's becoming less frequent. But if you could ha- have the have the opportunity to sit down with someone who's very different from you or who's ve- whose views are very different from you, and you can hear their story, you can listen to their story and understand what were the breadcrumbs or, you know, peeling back the layer of their onion, what were the experiences that led them to believe what they do? When you can do that and hear someone's story, even if you don't agree with where they landed, it is extraordinarily helpful to seeing how they believe what they believe. And it becomes much more, it's more, much more humanizing, if you will. And no one maybe we'll come back to this, but for example, no one is born into this world. No child is born into the world untrustworthy, not trusting other people. That is something we're taught. When you listen to someone's story about how they learn to mistrust other people, you start to see a bigger piece around, so why is it so difficult for them to trust certain situations or certain, you know, actors today? It's that, and trust is just one example. It's that kind of thing, though, more time being able to listen to one another's stories. And that's where I think in particular media plays a role. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny because it, you, I'm smiling because this is, you know, describing a lot of the philosophy behind why I choose the guests I do. You know, that's why you end up, we have had everybody from porn stars to presidential candidates as guests on the mm-hmm. show. And I remember mm-hmm. talking to a porn star, you know, we titled the mm-hmm. episode Destigmatizing the Adult Film Industry because mm-hmm. it was so mm-hmm. interesting to hear hear it from somebody, you know, like the reality versus what we think of, you know, because what do we do? We judge somebody for making this choice without understanding their story. But when you dissect the story, it's a totally different experience. I remember my sister listened to the episode and she was like, wow, she was really smart. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. of course she was. Mm-hmm. Why would she not be smart just because she's chosen to be an adult film actress? Like that's a, mm-hmm. that's a judgment that we place on somebody um, based on, you know, social narratives. Totally. Totally. And I think the example of, um, you know, porn films is a really, really good one. And then you listen to, you know, and, and there are certain things in life, and here I, I won't even put porn, porn films in this category, but there are certain things in life, certain experiences, you know, an example that comes up quite a lot these days, I think, is um, homelessness, right? And we are very quick to judge people who are homeless or houseless. Or to not see them, we can come back to that too. We sort of ignore, yeah. oh, that's bad, and sort of put it aside. And there's this sense, and you know, a refugee is another example. No one wants to be a refugee. No one opts into this. No one wants to be homeless. No one opts into this. And yet we come up with these stories around something perhaps that they did wrong or that being homeless, um, discounts you in all these other ways and it makes it it, we're completely glossing over a much a much i want to say richer richer deeper but much more profound story that if we understand it we start to see the individuals who have been through great challenge and hardship not only as some of the strongest people on the planet um and having strengths that we discount or don't see, but having strengths that those of us who do have a house over our head, we lack. We actually, you know, it, it's, a, it's a pity that we don't have more of that kind of grit. 
um, because of what we take for granted. But you do start to see different professions, different experiences as far more, hmm, it goes beyond holistic, but you begin to see, again, the value and the intelligence of every human being. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm. Well, I mean, speaking of the greatest hardships that people experience in life, I mean, you probably had one that I think anybody listening to this couldn't even fathom. Uh, and that was honestly the reason that I wanted to have this conversation. So, you know, for our listeners, can you, you know, explain to them what I, what it is I'm referring to? Yeah, of course. Of course. It would be my honor to do so. Um, 
And I these days I sort of give the caveat of like, I'm about to drop a hand grenade into the conversation. But I actually I do so very, very joyfully because it is one of the things that it, by far the hardest thing I've ever been through, but by far the single experience that has shaped who I am. And, you know, even I would not have written my book without this happening. No. Um, so more than 25 years ago, um, did, I will date myself. Uh, when I was in college, I was um, I was 20 and I was studying overseas halfway around the world. And I, I got a phone call um, right at the end of that year of studies. But basically, um, both of my parents were killed in a car accident. And it happened out of the blue. Um, when they died, you know, needless to say, my whole life flipped upside down. Um, it wasn't just how do I rebuild my family, but it was how do I deal with my grief and anxiety? What do I do about my career? All of a sudden, I've got to be self-sufficient. How do I take care of myself? Like, like everything just melted. And, um, and even when they died, you know, it was, it was my first experience with death. And I sort of jumped into the deep end without a, um, you know, little, without any water wings. But uh, when, when they died, like I had never been to a funeral, none. My grandparents were living, thankfully. Um, I'd never lost a pet, uh, all these different things. So my first funeral was the funeral of both of my parents. And um, yeah, that changed everything because we can dig into this more, you know, whether it's yeah. one's emotional and mental health, whether it's how you think about the future and the decisions you make. Um, you know, in my case, it led to a, a very sort of rational, irrational fear that I didn't have long to live either and that any one of us could be knocked off tomorrow, which candidly is true. But I began to really live that experience almost at a cellular level. And even though I had good health and lots of energy and I was only 20, I had this very, very existential sense of the fragility of life, but also the fact that we're all on borrowed time. And if that's the case, you know, to quote Mary Oliver, what, what are you going to do with your one precious life? And that led me to make very, very, very different decisions about what I wanted to do, how I wanted to show up, what things mattered, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe we can get more into yeah. that if you'd like, but that's, totally. that's the experience. You know, there are numerous questions that come from this. You know, one thing that I always wonder is why is it that, you know, it's a tragedy or a major crisis that becomes a catalyst or wake up call for so many people to make drastic changes to their life? So let's start with that. Yeah. So, and I'll, I'll give, I'm going to jump a little bit ahead straight away because a question I get all the time and particularly yeah. around you know, flux and navigating change and really making big shifts in how we think about change, right? People are like, does it require tragedy? You know, is it only when you've been through something so bad? And in my case, it was, you know, death. But for a lot of people, I think it's really bad illness. It's something that has put your back against the wall and you understand your morbidity. Um, and it's funny because I'm like, no. It absolutely doesn't require going through tragedy. It's actually a lot more fun if you don't, but it requires stretching beyond your comfort zone, even when you don't have to. Yeah. And that's the part that makes people really kind of 
I don't want to say trip up, but it's like, ooh, but if it's good, if things are good, why would I do that? And it's like, well, then, yeah, you're never going to get to where you want to be because you're going to stick to what's safe and familiar. Um, tragedy or real hardship or challenge, that's what it does to you. It knocks you out of the nest with no choice. It yeah. puts your back against the wall and makes you address these things that otherwise we just kind of don't want to have to go there, you know, kind of want to coast, kind of want to just like let life play out. Um, so, so I always like to sort of bring it, remind people of that tragedy is not, it's not a gating factor, but it can be a huge catalyst because that's what it does. You know, it really makes you wake up and say, this is for real. And, and so much of this, Again, maybe we can come back to this if you want. Yeah. Um, there's just this existential nature, right, of what we're talking about. And and that sense of any hardship makes you realize, holy crap, I don't have that long in life. What am I going to make of my time? And I think that's, you know, time being fundamentally the most, you know, finite asset we have. Um, that 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 really has an impact on people. I will also say, bit of a side note, but the way I like to characterize um, what I went through is that I kind of experienced the equivalent of a midlife crisis when I was 20 because the questions that I was asking then, now many years later when I see people going through some, you know, some variation of a midlife or a, you know, third life, quarter life, I don't know, but like people struggling at some point later in their careers in particular, they're asking the same kinds of questions. And so it's interesting because as much as, you know, I don't wish tragedy on anybody. And sure, there's a piece of me that wishes that my parents hadn't died. And of course, I miss them, but missing them won't bring them back. Um, I continue to have this sense of gratitude for having that kind of crisis that young because it gave me that much more future that I could do things differently. Mm. Yeah. You know, so this is kind of one of the things that I've, I've always thought about. I thought, you know, like I can listen to a story like yours, I can read your book, but I don't think that I will ever understand something like this until I've experienced it. And mm -hmm. we had uh, Frank Ostaseski from the Zen Hospice Project here mm -hmm. uh, as a guest. And I told him that my greatest fear in life was not being alone, but it was that my parents wouldn't be around to see milestone moments like you know, getting married or having kids, especially now that I'm 43. And this is what he said to me. Take a listen. We spend all this time imagining we're going to get ready for our dying. And I think it's a kind of absurd idea to imagine that at the time of our dying, we will have the strength of body, the emotional stability, the mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime. It's an absurd gamble. So we should do this work now. And that includes those of us who are not dying, who are with our, elder, our aging parents, for example. Be with them now. Tell them you love them now. Waiting is full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment to arrive. We miss this one. Waiting for the moment of dying. We miss all the moments in between. So that's the great thing. Hold death out there as a shine, as a shine of light on it, so to speak. And hold it out there as a way of reminding you to attend to what most matters. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> And I, I knew that I wanted to bring that clip into this conversation because, you know, I, I, I wonder, you know, having lost your parents, you know, you mentioned that you were married. How does that transform the experiences of these like huge moments in your life, like getting married, like the ones that you probably never imagined your parents wouldn't be around to see? 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like my, so right now, just listening to that, my heart is like just beaming. It's like bursting out of my rib cage because it's so brilliant, so spot on, and so how I feel about everyone, you know, not just my own experience, but everyone to be listening and absorbing what we just heard, just like spot on. Um, so it's an interesting question because, I mean, when it comes to relationships and things, I can definitely tell you here I am able to, I'm speaking with you, you know, many years later in the immediate aftermath of losing my parents. Oh yeah. It was basically, it was like, everything felt pretty doomed. Everything that I thought my parents might participate gone, right? It it was not easy. But there's a parallel process that starts to go on, at least it did for me, which was, okay, my parents aren't here, but like humanity didn't disappear. Other people didn't disappear who care about me. I need to rebuild my family. And so it wasn't it was no longer my biological parents. But what I like to say is in the years since, um, none of this was official adoption. But, you know, hypothetically, in the heart, I have now effectively three sets of adopted parents. Uh, one in particular that I, you know, that's where I'm expected to spend holidays from from time to time now that I'm married and so forth. But like, <laughs> I had other families step in and say, we have our eye on you. Now, would any of them ever replace my mom and dad? No. Do, did any of them ever try to? Absolutely not. They had the utmost respect for what I had, you know, that you only have your mom and dad if that's how you grew up, right? But over the years, I have built, actually, a much bigger family of choice than I would have had had my parents lived. Now, I'm not saying better or worse. I'm just saying it's different. But was I able to get to the point where I felt like I was part of a family again? Absolutely. Now, at the same time, I will tell you that for many years, I would say a solid decade um, throughout my 20s, it related to this rational yet irrational belief that I didn't have long to live. Um, it extended to, and this was quite problematic, but it extended to this rational, irrational belief that the more I loved someone else, the more likely they were going to die tomorrow. So needless to say, I was a disaster for dating. Um, I was kind of toxic, right? I mean, you would not have wanted to date me, but also I didn't want to date anybody because I was afraid of being hurt again. And so all of these paths or all of these evolutions are running in parallel. What is my relationship to myself? And this speaks directly to what we just heard. Um, and I don't want to sound too morbid here, but I will tell you that for a, for a long time, since my 20s, for sure, um, I have walked myself through my own, not my own death. I don't know how I'm going to die, and I hope to live to be triple digits. But I have walked myself kind of to the edge of that cliff and been like, all right, okay, so now let's go make the most of today. Um, I have walked myself through, my husband is... He's going to die at some point. We we joke sometimes about who's going to go first, but let's you know that, that does not need to. That that's neither here nor there. Um, I know when if I were to get the news that my husband had passed away, I can tell you what I would do. Or and maybe I don't. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't do that. But I have this sense of what would I do to hold and support myself, so that I know I know I will be fine when that happens. I will be sad, but I will be fine. 
And what's interesting to me is most people are too afraid of doing that work. So they fear the death. Yeah. But it's the walking through the fire and, and, and then you don't, you don't get sad about it per se. I mean, you'll be sad when it happens. You don't fear it so much. You just realize, yeah, I'm going to have to walk through that fire, but I have done everything I possibly can to be ready for that moment, which, which gives me the freedom, if you will, emotionally to go and live my life fully today. Hmm. So there are though these different paths. So the one was my relationship with myself and could I love myself? Could I care for myself? Could I see myself still as me despite all of the loss and the, the challenges that were just, you know, ripping me every which direction each day? Then there was the, you know, the, the path or the, the journey, my relationship with other people, both, you know, like a dating or a marriage kind of relationship, but then more broadly, what does family mean? And then the concentric circle beyond that is who am I? What is my role in society at large? And what's interesting is you realize that we all have biological families. Although a lot of people don't, you know, they're not, they're not, a, they don't grow up with a family unit or their biological parents or, you know, parents split or are lost or, you know, family strife, all the rest. Like there's all kinds of stuff that that sense of family doesn't exist for a lot of people. And yet, we're all still part of this thing called humanity. We all still have a relationship with the broader whole. And if you can find a sense of home and being within that, even if it's not necessarily your biological mother and father, you can still feel that sense of purpose and connection. And, um, you know, relationship wise, you can still thrive. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, let's get into the book finally. Uh, you open the book by saying we're living in a world of influx. The workplace is in flux. Climate is in flux. Organizations are in flux. Careers are in flux. Education, learning in schools are in flux. Public health is in flux. Planetary health is in flux. Social cohesion is in flux. Financial markets, weather, family life, democracy, dreams, and expectations. And you say in a world in flux, we must learn to be comfortable with the reality that around the next corner is more change, much of which is unexpected beyond our power to choose or both. It's about a shift from struggling with such change to harnessing and developing an eagerness to use it well. And I know that you have what you call the eight superpowers for thriving in constant change, because it's true. We are basically in a state of constant change. And I think that, you know, you talk about the fact that certainty is an illusion. I realized this, I think, by the time I was 30, that everything that I had ever planned for my life wasn't going to happen. Um mm -hmm. But you open with the very first superpower, which is to run slower. And it's kind of ironic, you know, in sort of rapid change, you say, when we run to learn slower, the outcomes are better across to health, a stronger connection with our emotions and intuition, the board, wiser decisions, less stress, greater resilience, improved presence, focus and clarity of purpose. Paradoxically, slowing down actually gives us more time, which leads to less anxiety Slowing down enhances our productivity in ways that matter and sends burnout to the dustbin. In reality, there are many kinds of growth that can come only with rest. And it's kind of an odd contrast of this world in, that is changing at such a rapid pace. And yet the key to thriving in, in it is to run slower. How do you convince people of that when, you know, people like me are basically writing articles about, you know, optimizing for productivity instead of presence, which I know you're talking about? Um, medium, you know, is a website literally every day filled with like productivity hacks galore. And the biggest complaint that people have is, oh, I don't have enough time to do all this stuff. Yeah. 
<laughs> so I'm just sitting here grinning because I love digging into this sort of thing and how it, and not that it rubs people the wrong way, but it's so contrary, um, so counter, so it's, it's contrary to what a lot of what we're taught. It's counterintuitive and yet it is far more fit for a world and a future in flux. But I want to go back and, and I apologize. I have a couple things I want to fill in here real quick. Um, one is, you know, that list of X, Y, and Z is in flux, right? Believe it or not, I didn't even write this about the pandemic, right? It's quite funny <laughs> when you're like, okay, I kind of have to put that out there of, um, you know, I've been writing the book since 2018, really, as mostly from my futurist lens, um, also, you know, global perspective and so forth. And also with this human experience, this lived experience with change, where I'm looking at the future going like, there is so much that's changing right now, but also there's more of it ahead. And humans are really not well equipped to deal with this kind of constant, relentless change. That was 2018. Um, then, then, you know, 2020 hit and people are like, oh my God, the world is in flux. My life is in flux, right? And so there is this kind of incredible, I could not have asked for a better validation or acceleration for some of these ideas. But <laughs> I want to put that out there so that people know, like, yes, we're all, we are, we can all look at something over the last year and a half, two years, you know, wow, there's really something here. But I want us to keep in mind that there's more of this kind of, you know, I hope there's not a another pandemic anytime too soon. And we know there will be, but we don't know when and hopefully not that bad. But what I want to tease out is that there's more of this kind of uncertainty, unknowns. The only steady state is one of constant change. We are, that is not the world that a lot of us, including myself, were raised to believe we're going to live in, right? So just want to kind of, as you listen to this conversation, keep that in mind that this isn't a 2020, 2021 thing. This is a forever moving forward thing. And how do we prepare? How do we develop the mindset and the superpowers to thrive in this kind of change? So before we get to the eight flux superpowers, the one other thing that I, I talk about quite a bit in the book, but it relates, I kind of like to tee it up as part of the superpowers, um, is this notion of a flux mindset. And, uh, the flux mindset is an ability to see all change, whether it's, you know, quote unquote, good or bad, whether it's expected or unexpected, whether it's something you got to opt into or something you couldn't control. It's the ability to see all of it as an opportunity to learn and to grow and to improve. But that's there's a sort of initial step of being able to open this flux mindset to be able to acknowledge that your relationship to change needs some help. <laughs> At least it does for a world in flux. Um, yeah. and I find that pretty much everybody does in different ways. And then once you have that open, that, that willingness to explore, then you look to, you know, harness that flux mindset to unlock and develop the eight flux superpowers. The first one of which is run slower. And so each of the eight flux superpowers is actually counterintuitive in some way, it rubs you the wrong way. You're kind of like, eh. and I got to say, anyone who wants to write product, you know, pieces about productivity hacks and so on and so forth, you are welcome to do so. You, and, <laughs> right? I have no problem. Feel free. The challenge I'm looking at, and again, going back to some of the existential stuff, I have never met anybody on the planet who on their deathbed says, oh, if only I'd been more productive. Never. Never. Yeah. So the running slower is about Getting past the, I got to do everything all the time right now and being able to slow down enough to be able to see what really matters and then go do that. 
And wow. you can be as productive. You'll be productive. It's so much more important to me to be productive about the things that matter than to be productive for its own sake. Having more meetings in a given day does not make you more productive in a life purpose kind of way, unless those meetings are actually worthwhile. Um, it, it All of this is just so backwards. But here's the piece I want to kind of tee up for us. So it's not just what is changing, right? So much is changing. You rattle off the list. I won't, don't need to repeat it. But it is also this pace of change, right? That the way I like to put it is um, the pace of change has never been as fast as it is today. And yet it is likely to never again be this slow. (laughs) So you just kind of let that sink in for a minute and it's kind of exciting and it's kind of terrifying, right? Why it's terrifying is because the narrative that society tells us, I think most people, including myself for most of my life, what was I taught? When the pace of change quickens, I'm supposed to run faster and just keep up, right? And yet, I'm going to venture to say wrong. Um, If we know already that the pace of change is increasing, and we know that we're already running as fast as we can, I think a lot of people would say they're running faster than they want to. They're really, this is exhaustion and burnout and anxiety, but this is also simply not being able to show up fully for other people. This is not being able to have new, fresh ideas because you're exhausted. This is all of that as well. If we're looking at this going, wait a minute, pace of change is increasing and we're supposed to run faster. So you're telling me, you not you, but society is telling us that however fast you're running today, you need and you should run even faster tomorrow, faster next week, next month, next year, you know, all of this effectively for the rest of your life. And I look at this both, you know, the futurist in me and the human in me is like, time out, hold on. What kind of life is that, right? It's certainly not the kind of life I wish to live, but even more important, far more important for me and for the book, I don't think it's a reality in which anyone can truly thrive. I don't think it's a reality in which anyone can actually reach their full potential. So when I say run slower, I, you'll note, I did not say stop. (laughs) I did not say be lazy. I didn't say any of that. I said run but do so at a pace that is sustainable for life. Mm, Wow. So the next superpower is to see what's invisible. And you say that each of us is inspired by by what we see, but in a world of constant change, that principle only gets us so far. How do we move beyond what we can see and find inspiration and what we can't? How do we learn to see differently and make the invisible visible? This is all directly Mm -hmm. tied to writing your new script. The point is these social orientations fundamentally fundamentally influence how we see. For example, people who live in collectivist societies tend to prioritize the context of a social situation and the big picture when solving problems. They hone in the overarching relationships and interplay of systems beyond any individual's control. But then you go on to talk about privilege, which is what struck me the most mm-hmm. about this chapter. You said, privilege, you said privilege blinds. It limits the perceptions of what's in their script uh, for people, and it keeps them from seeing the full picture and what's in the wings. Now, What's funny is uh, I I had Seth Godin here right after he wrote The Practice, and we were talking about privilege. And I told him, I said, I think that one of the things that I've become hyper aware of over the better part of the the last year or so was that I had a relatively privileged upbringing. I mean, you know, my parents, my dad's a college professor. You know, we weren't dirt poor. I mean, he struggled early in his career. But for the most part, there's no question as to whether I was going to get a college education, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, whether I'd always have a roof over my head. And that's the funny thing, like Indian parents, despite what a pain in the ass they can be, like the one thing we always know is no matter how old you are, that door is always open with food on the Mm -hmm. table. Seth said this to me, and I wanted to share it with you and see what you thought. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I was doing some work with Acumen in rural Kenya and the typical smallholder farmer there has half an acre. And I got to be friends with this woman named Lucy. And Lucy has a taxi company, a tree farm and productive field that earns her $3,000 a year, which is enough money to put all her kids to private school. And her next door neighbor with the same land has none of those things because Compared to you and I, Lucy has no privilege whatsoever. But uh. the story she tells herself, the story she told me is if I can find an opportunity and explore it at low risk, I'm going to do it because I'll find something that will help for me and my kids. 
And she showed me that under her bed, she keeps a cigar box with 1 million Kenyan shillings in it. She's a millionaire. And when did she become a millionaire? I think she became a millionaire the day she decided to try a different kind of seed because everyone else around her was like, we have to use the seed we've always used. And she was like, it's only going to cost me $4 to find out. I'm going to give it a try. Yep. (laughs) With that in mind, um, two things. How do we maintain awareness of the fact that many of us have privileged upbringings and, you know, expect, you know, like accept the reality that not everybody grew up with in the same circumstances we did, but also keep it from blinding us and, you know, allowing us to capitalize on the opportunities that we have. Yep. So I love this. And I love what Seth said, because Seth actually described the world that I worked in for more than a decade. He described, so Lucy is a microfinance client. I can tell, I can tell you by her story. Microfinance is small-scale lending and savings products for the economically active poor. I built my career on microfinance. And I worked, I, I worked with Acumen, um, know their whole team quite well, um, in sub-Saharan Africa, across Latin America, the Middle East, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, like, like most places where emerging frontier developing markets. Um, and this is one of the examples I use for see what's invisible. So traditional bank, just picking up on what Seth was saying, Traditional banks would deem Lucy unbankable. They would not see her because, well, now in her case, with her million shillings, she would be deemed bankable because she has enough for a savings account. But most of the economically active poor, Lucy before, earlier in her career, right? Unbankable, quote unquote, we're not going to lend to you. You're risky. And there's an implicit assumption that somehow you've, you know, in a way, done something wrong to end up poor. No, the economically active poor have done nothing wrong. The challenge they face is that they were born in the wrong place, wrong time, wrong side of the tracks, whatever. And this, and, and they're in an environment that doesn't have, you know, the kind of economic infrastructure that helps a lot of people thrive. So I bring this up because it's like spot on. And once you learn to see that invisible, quote unquote, invisible talent, potential, opportunity. You want to invest in it immediately. And so microfinance is basically lending and savings products for people with no collateral who would not be seen by traditional banks. But what I love is that microfinance repayment rates are the best repayment rates you're going to find for any loan, any kind of anywhere in the world, 99 plus, plus, plus percent repayment. (laughs) Unlike Donald Trump, who borrows billions and doesn't pay it back. So exact or a a corporate loan, whatever default rates, you name it, because you're lending based on character, you're lending based. And also when you don't have a lot of this, I'm going to come back to privilege because it's all all over the place here. When you don't have that privilege, so to speak, you can be damn sure you're going to repay this loan and you're going to you're going to use it. You're going to you see it also. It becomes um, more than just the finance. It's one of those things, character-based lending is just really, really smart. And if you do it in the right way, as in microfinance, this is maybe a bit of a, a side note, but, but for those, those people listening who are interested, you know, microfinance began by, uh, the first microloan in a modern sense, um, that was made. It's kind of this classic case. Um, one loan of $27 was made to 10 people. So each person got $2.70. This was back in the seventies. But the condition of the loan is if any of you cannot repay your portion of the loan, um, the other nine people 
are responsible for it. Wow. Now, this was a group of wi- village women who all of whom were, again, very much considered part of the economic act of poor, but they they made soap, they made brooms, they made basically they would use this money to get access to raw materials so they could sidestep the middlemen and actually earn more profit on the very basic goods they were making. And so all of a sudden, what do you have? You have these 10 women who are like, we're going to help one another succeed because when we all repay our loans, we all win. And none of them were in a position, for example, if they couldn't make their loan that they would like dodge town. No, they lived in a village with their families and like all they had was that reputation. So anyway, I bring this back because invisible, this is not just invisible value. This is not just invisible talent. This is like, wow, we have designed our financial services to not see the reality of a lot of people. This is insane because when you can learn to see that, all of a sudden you're unlocking not just poverty alleviation, you're unlocking microenterprise, you're unlocking um, livelihoods, you're unlocking the ability for people to then be able to pay for their kids to go to school, pay to have a, um, you know, a, a tap and a toilet in their home. These are things that we, again, those with privilege, take for granted. So yeah. coming back to privilege, it's huge. And I do just want to underscore one thing that I've learned um, I'll sort of put it out there because I've learned this through interviews and lots of just kind of reflecting and writing and, and, and hashing out things is that there are many, many kinds of privilege and financial privilege is definitely one, right? But that tends to be where we head first. Um, I would also argue that being raised in an emotionally stable, loving family. Yeah. Is a huge privilege that actually I would say pays even greater dividends than financial security over time. Um, there are all kinds of privilege. And so each of access to education is a privilege. Access, access to primary education is a privilege. Access to, you know, university education is privilege beyond. It's, it's extraordinary. And when you have that kind of privilege, again, this comes from what my dad and my parents taught me, this sense of if you have that kind of privilege, you have a duty and a responsibility to give back and to help those who don't have that privilege to gain it. So anyway, I just want to tease out like privilege comes in many different flavors and um, we would all do a little bit better to, to, to sit down and, and write, a lo- write a list of the ways in which you, you have been privileged, even if you may tend to focus on the ways in which you have not been. Yeah. You, so I, I don't know why this thought occurred to me the other day. I'd been writing a lot about the creator economy and the fact mm-hmm. that it is ripe with inequality where, you know, a, a handful of creators take the majority of funding on crowdfunding platforms, a you know, handful of authors sell the majority of books. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can answer this question for me. Is it possible to take this whole idea of microfinance, you know, that we've applied to the economically active poor and apply it to the middle class with the same kind of dynamic where there's the risk that people will optimize for self-interest over the collective. Oh, I love this. So um, I could talk about this all day. And what I love, it's funny, it's not, it's not, microfinance does show up a couple places in the book, but it's this part of my background, this part of my history that so formed what I do. And yet I don't get to talk about it that often today. So I'm like, this is great. Like we could spend all our time right here. Um, yes, we could. But a couple, couple different ways to look at this. Um, one is microfinance does exist in the United States, in developed countries around the world, 
in a, in some form or fashion. Now it usually shows up as like some kind of access to mm, capital with friendly terms, small business loans. It's not, it's not the micro like we think of it, but, but a flavor of it does. One of the biggest challenges, and this is actually where I spent a bunch of my time in this space. Um, the more it's, there's a bit of a catch 20, not catch 22, sort of. Um, the more sophisticated a legal and regulatory environment, we could say sophisticated, we could say complex, we could say, you know, crazy, um, you know, layered with all kinds of rules and regulations. The more layers of rules and regulations you have from a policy perspective, the harder it often is to get microfinance to take root. So I mentioned that because there are all kinds of opportunities to bring microfinance to the United States, to other income um, income levels, demographics, et cetera. The challenge, one of the biggest challenges we face right now is that the rules and regulations in place won't let it happen. Yeah. They also make it look, I kid you not, and this is where the work I did in emerging markets was super interesting. Um, but in a lot of places, microfinance on the surface, despite knowing 99 plus percent re- repayment rates, da, 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 microfinance on the surface is deemed illegal. <laughs> Because the rules on the book say you can only lend to people with collateral. And so to some degree, you understand why that rule might have first been put in place of like, don't make a loan to somebody if you can't, if they don't have some way to pay it back, even if it's seizing their property kind of thing, right? But then you look at it and you go, this rule was not designed for the people we're trying to deliver microfinance to. And so one of the things I did was in dozens of, of countries around the world, I helped draft new legislation that actually saw microfinance for what it is, that it's not collateral based and that they had special provisions. And we, you know, we did all of that. But in a country, let's go back to Lucy, uh, a country like Kenya, at the time this happened, you know, most emerging economies had one banking law, right? Just like one law, pretty standard, often incorporated from their colonial um, history but it worked all right, but it wasn't super sophisticated. And so introducing a microfinance law, you could actually streamline and integrate those laws together. You right. come to somewhere like the U.S. and it's like, oh, my God, we have how many thousand laws about finance? <laughs> so I've heard. You have to change all of those to get microfinance. <laughs> like people just their eyes start glazing over. But it's not to say that it, A, isn't possible or B, wouldn't work really well. Um, so some of the things, even something like, um, the jobs act, which transformed a lot of ways that we think about microfinance, that in and of itself was an extraordinary policy innovation because what it did, it did unlock prior to that. It would be like, if you want to participate, if you want to invest, you can only do so if you have, you know, seven figures and above kind of thing. And people were going, well, that's not reality. So it did, it started, but we need much more in that regard. But is it possible? Totally. Um, is it going to happen? I'm not sure, though, just to, you know, kind of mind meld a little bit. I don't know that that alone would solve the inequality in the creator co- economy that you're talking about. It would definitely expand access to capital in a mm. productive way. No question. But this, this, this tension that we have around a few people taking off with the lion's share of the, of the upside, um, that's going to require, I think, policy and other innovation beyond just, um, the piece we're talking about here. Sorry. 
I'm sorry, say that again, April. I, I had to connect my power to my headphones. Oh, sorry. That, um, how far? Just the last. You're, you're good. That last sentence. That last sentence. Okay. Um, I think that the, <clears throat> excuse me. I think that, so the, the policy innovation that we're describing here is one piece of a more, um, you know, a bigger puzzle, so to speak, additional to tackle the inequality between a few creatives making off with the lion's share of benefits. That's going to require policy and other kinds of innovation that go beyond yeah. simply the, the example, the, the form we're talking about here. Yeah. I mean, cause like I, I couldn't help but think like if you were to give aspiring creators a thousand dollars, a thousand dollars would get them yeah. a hell of a long way because yes. I mean, compared to, you know, when I went to college, when it took a thousand dollars just to build a website, a thousand dollars would get you pretty damn far today if you use it wisely. Yes. So something like that. Absolutely. Now that is, and here, you know, there's a difference between how would we look at that kind of Keep in mind, you know, microfinance loans, they're still loans that carry interest that are repayable, you know, all of that. So there's also, depending on the crowdfunding platform you're using, um, or, you know, anyone is using, sometimes that is deemed to be debt. Um, it's usually debt that's forgivable. So you can kind of say, don't expect to be repaid, right? It could also be equity where you're like, you own this until, you know, some future point in time or you own it forever but when you know there might be a payout at some point so it depends on when we talk about like a thousand dollars what would that one thousand dollars look like because if we treated it just like microfinance it would be a loan that is due and payable and so we'd want to make sure that we get the terms right that that's fair for people etc etc but then also you know there's this there's this uh this other angle which is more equity we're going to give you a thousand dollars and you know, do we perhaps own a piece of what you're going to build down the road or do we just treat it more like, you know, practically speaking, like a grant, which is doable also. And here, just one quick example, it's quite fun, but I'm guessing, um, so Acumen, Seth talked about them, but there's also the platform Kiva, mm -hmm. um, if you're familiar with Kiva. So if you go back, I was actually Kiva's, I mentioned that I have training as a lawyer and whatnot. I don't practice law today, but it's one of the chapters in my book of life. I was actually Kiva's general counsel when they were three months old. Wow. And had to figure out, this was, I loved it. It was so much fun what we had to figure out. But I just want to remind people, so Kiva is a wonderful example. And Kiva works in the U.S. But their start was in actually exactly where, where, where Seth was in um, East Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, but they now work in every country, I think, except for um, Iraq and North Korea, if memory serves. Like, they're lending all over the place. Um, but uh, there, individuals can make loans as small as $25 to entrepreneurs and small farmers, smallholder farmers and all that sort of stuff around the world. Um, you are technically, when, when you sign up to make a Kiva loan, you say it's, 25 bucks and it should have a term of two to three years or whatever the, you know, whatever you choose opt into. But when that loan comes due, you know, think about it. You've lent 25 bucks to a farmer in Uganda. You, they're like, okay, you get your $25 back. Of course you're thinking, no, I want to invest this in another farmer. Keep the money, like keep, keep the money going. So what's fascinating is something like 89% of Kiva borrowers, when they make that quote investment, they never expect to see the money back. They just want to keep helping entrepreneurs. So it's that kind of 
mentality that we want to bring to greater swaths of society as well, which is I want my my income. Yes, it's an investment, but I want it to be actively working for others at all times. Yeah. So in the interest of time, uh, there's two, uh, I think, three other areas that I want to cover. Um, let's talk about this idea of getting lost, uh, because you say if you never get lost, you never actually find your way and your new script can never fully shine. When we optimize for efficiency, getting lost is the ultimate efficiency, inefficiency. But not only that, mm-hmm. in the process, we sap creativity out of the picture and send the misguided signal that the path ahead is clear. In reality, it's anything but clear. Indeed, if the goal is truly innovative solutions or fresh thinking or simply being resilient, then getting lost is essential. And I think that struck me. Uh, we had a new roommate move in who was a young kid compared to me. Like he's, I think he's 20, he's about to turn 27. And I remember right when you know, I told my dad, I was like, this kid was in diapers when I was in college. And my dad said, he's not still in diapers, so I'm sure he'll be fine. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was funny to listen to him, you know, telling us the other day, he's like, man, I'm turning 27. I don't have my life figured out. I don't know what I'm you know, supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't help but laugh because here I am 43 years old. And was like, yeah, this is a conversation I have with myself every day. Yes. Yeah, totally. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, I'm reminded as we're talking about getting lost that even though the eight flux superpowers, um, they're all self-standing, independent, you can practice them on their own. They do really, they start to bleed into one another as well. Um, where as you learn one, you start looking at another one going like, oh yeah, that makes more sense. I see like, and when you bring up the story of the young person, um, so much of our script is caught up, you know, I'm guessing the 27 year old friend, you know, there's a sense of like, I'm supposed to run faster, supposed Mm -hmm. to keep up, supposed to be on this hamster wheel or this treadmill or whatever. And I'm supposed to focus and, you know, stay on the path and don't get lost. And also, and I'm not going to say this about him, but one of the things I'm finding consistently among younger people is this sense, this very deep sense that even by the time, if they go to university, by the time they go to university, so in their teen years, they've already adopted and absorbed this sense that they're never going to do or have or earn or, most importantly, be enough. Yeah. And that's another superpower, you know, know you're enough, maybe we'll go there. But like all of this is wrapped up into the same kind of hornet's nest. Because all of it is actually very untrue and yet it's making, and yet it's what we've absorbed and it's making us mostly miserable. So this whole notion of like, I haven't figured it all out. It's like, let's get clear. Like the whole, the whole life journey is exactly that. It's a journey and you're going to be learning about it your whole life. And just when you think you've quote unquote figured it out, something else is going to change in your life or in the world. And you're going to be like, hmm, I have some more learning to do. And that's not like a big tragic change necessarily. It could be something really good where it, I, it happens often where go back and think about, I'm, I'm guessing you fall into this category. I certainly do. Go go back to like what you thought mattered most when you were 20. <laughs> and then yeah. what you thought mattered most at 25 and at 30 and at 35. And, at, and, and, and you go back and you go, oh my gosh, if I had actually stuck to this is absolutely most important at age 20 and then like gotten upset that it didn't work out that way. You're like, thank goodness it didn't work out that way, right? So I feel like we get caught in a lot of those kind of conversations with ourselves that aren't really that helpful. And that getting lost is a natural part of learning to get to know yourself better, but also being able to show up more fully for what you were actually meant to do, knowing that that what you're supposed to do 
is also going to continue to change and evolve over time, just as you do as a human being. Yeah, it's funny because I remember the the joke I always said was, you know, I thought I'd have an office where I wore a suit every day. I didn't think that the suit I would wear the most right. in my life is a wetsuit. Yeah, nice. That's good. <laughs> so, but it, it all caught up. So much of this professional stuff is caught up in that as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about this whole idea of knowing you're enough. One of the things mm -hmm. that you say is in today's consumer driven world, we're plagued by a stubborn script that proclaims, proclaims more is better and taunts you for never doing, earning or achieving enough. This script is old and crusty, but remains very much alive among its pop more popular manifestations is that you'll never have enough. So mm -hmm. I had a uh, financial advisor here as a guest who had worked with billionaires and uh, we were talking about this concept of enough. And this is what she had to say. What if instead of always looking for more, which is part of the American dream, you can fill in the blank, whether it's more money, more fame, more status, more house, more car, we focused on optimizing our own definition of enough. And I think with A, that could have such a huge impact on the planet just from a variety of different global climate change issues if we weren't consuming as much. But a bit more importantly, I think it would have a huge impact on our happiness. So can I pause real quick here? Yeah. Is that is that Manisha? Yeah, it is. Who's a dear friend and lives down the street. Anyways. <laughs> That's funny. I did not know that. Small yes, world. No, I'm like, that is her voice. And uh, she's. Indeed. I don't know if that if yeah, there you go. Um, and uh, you, yeah, we do yoga together. Uh, hey, wow. That's good of serendipitous <laughs> that that was the uh, script. Because I, you know, normally I don't pull clips from other episodes, but with your book, I had so many points of reference that I wanted to bring them back. Uh, so the thing that I wonder is we live in this world where we're being fed messages constantly from the world around us about more like what do we do on social media? You know, we see the highlight reels of everybody's lives, you know, like remember you and I were talking before we officially recorded about, you know, me getting stressed about all the authors who sold more books than I have. So, you know, when you're drowning in this, you know, sea of narratives about more, how do you, you know, develop your own definition of enough and not be, you know, led astray by other people's yardsticks? Yeah, so I love this because there is actually an exercise that I encourage people to do. It's very, you know, basic. It's easy, easy to undertake. I wouldn't necessarily say that people, you know, it makes people struggle a little bit in a good way. And it's just this notion of like, what is your enoughness? And have you ever thought, like, what things in life do you have too much of? What things do you have too little of? And again, no judgment. And it's not about better or worse. It's just like, and and here to the point, I mean, I love how Manisha teed it up because I'm always like, it's not just more money. It's more power, more love, more likes, more followers, more clothes, more clicks, like more everything, right? What do you have too much of? What do you have too little of? I tend to find, it, and this is very much, you know, a US-centric view here, but I can extend it. We can talk about what it means globally. You know, a lot of people I think are over-indexed on stuff. We have <laughs> a lot too much. But we're under-indexed more broadly on, I could call it humanity, but we're under-indexed on things like respect, including self-respect, self-love, trust, um, time, for sure. 
all those sorts of things. And so you look at this and you go, why have we over-indexed in the ways we have? And why are we so lacking in these other ways? Because having knowing you're enough is both not too much, but also not too little. And so that balance point between abundance and scarcity. Um, and I think, so both economics and psychology are at play. And one layer that we can easily add in here is just the role of consumerism, right? And and the fact that we live in a hyper-consumer society today. And consumerism itself isn't, I don't want to say it's bad. Um, do keep in mind, though, that the original definition of the word to consume means to destroy. So for most of human history, consumption was not something you actively sought out. It was something that killed you. Nevertheless, today we are in this hyper-consumer society, and one of the goals of consumerism is to get us to buy more stuff. How do you get that to happen? You convince people that they are not enough and that the way they become enough is to buy your product or service. And so that when we are bombarded with a gajillion messages from consumer companies saying, you know, and again, a lot of it is very nuanced. It's very subtle. But you look at a lot of the marketing. And if you see something that's like, I will be happy when, I will be successful when, that when implies that you're not happy or successful today and that you need more of something to become it versus being able to actually say, hold on, if you were to just tune all that out for a minute, if you know you're enough, you actually realize that you are happy, can be happy if you choose to be right here, right now. There is nothing keeping anybody. And what it's interesting, it's it's less of a happiness versus sadness. It's more of an inner contentedness and a kind of inner peace, if you will, that comes from recognizing that you are enough. So knowing you're enough, Y-O-U-R, includes knowing that you are enough, just as you are, without ever doing ever, anything more. And oh, by the way, you always have been. That's the key. Because then people go, oh, my God, why have I gotten myself into this sort of twisted into this pretzel thinking I will never have enough, be enough, whatever? You already are. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, I want to finish by talking about two areas in particular that you brought up. Um, The first was, you know, portfolio careers. You say Mm -hmm. that a portfolio career takes inspiration from these different stages. Portfolios can be sequential, one role or vacation at a time or simultaneous, multiple roles and activities at once. Career portfolios often create professional niches and lifestyles that are more complete, personalized, modern, adaptable, and personally rewarding than any single role could be. And then you go on to describe the linear path, which is what we've been prescribed by society forever. And you say along this linear path, individuals become defined by what they do. Your sense of self-worth got wrapped up in what rung of the ladder you occupy. And you know, it's funny because 20 years ago when I was in college, that was absolutely true. And I remember going to a job interview as the guy who has been fired from every job I've ever had. Uh, (laughs) And this woman told me, she looked at my resume and she said, this was literally before I graduated from college. She said, you've had more jobs in college than you have in my, than I have in my entire professional career. 10, you know, whenever some, somewhere late, you know, years later, I was talking to Robert Greene about the book Mastery. And I remember looking at mm-hmm. Robert Greene's background and seeing he had something like 37 different jobs before he wrote any of his books. And the one thing that always stayed with me from that conversation was he said, no experience of, in your life should be thought of as wasted. Uh, and so what I wonder is, how do you redesign an education system to accommodate for this? 
which I realized we could do a whole episode about that, which we might have to. We could, and I would be delighted to, and how portfolio careers, career portfolios, people like both of those kinds of orderings. Um, oh my goodness, this bleeds directly not into the, not into only the future of work and professional identity and career development, but also into the future of learning and education. And, you know, it's a, it's a continuum because the narrative, the script that we have right now for many people, again, including sounds like what you and I were taught. Um, but not the reality of today is this whole linear sense of study, work, retire, study hard, get good grades, go to university if you can, track into a good job, do said job for a very long time, climb the ladder, retire. Like that's it. And that is a narrative that A is not working any longer for many people. Hello, great resignation and far beyond. Um, but also it's a, a narrative that a lot of people are saying, that's not, that's not where fulfillment and meaning and you know, again, this whole notion of what are you going to do with your one precious life? They're saying that's not it. So all of these forces are kind of colliding together. Now, I can tell you that there are, I love how much traction this superpower, this concept is getting, including how many educators want this change to happen. So there's a hunger to sort of rethink. And it's not we could talk about, we could go down many different rabbit holes. I think, what does it mean for curriculum? What does it mean for credentialing? What does it mean for career services? That's where I've had a lot of work recently, where even though colleges, for example, and educators in general will acknowledge that the future of work, what they're trying to prepare students to track into looks nothing like it did a generation ago. But as we also know, just talk to any teenager or 20-something, say, who do you ask for advice about your career? Not their parents. YouTube. And, you know, and the parents are like, I have no idea. Like, I've actually I've long ago lost count of how many parents had approached me saying, oh, my God, you're exactly right. But I don't know what to tell my kids because the reality that I had is just completely different. So back to the education piece, though, fascinating. And, and I don't know which for me, the lowest hanging fruit right now within education is for higher education, at least, it is the whole role of career services because they're the ones, they're the kind of landing spot. You graduate from college and then, okay, what do you do to prepare? So career services, they totally get that things are changing. And yet, what are they still doing? They are recruiting employers to hire students on campus or you know, whatever. It's very traditional. And so right there, you start saying, hmm, do you have any offerings for someone to help develop their career portfolio? Do you have any offerings for students to actually go through the process of what it would be like to start their own venture? Do you have it? You know, no. So that right there, what you are, I was happy to learn. Um, I've been researching the space for, it feels like forever, but for more than a decade. And it was super interesting to see that there are um, more, it's still rare, but it's happening where career services centers are actually rebranding themselves as life design centers. Mm. That's interesting. If you can actually start doing that when you're in your teenage years or, you know, before you've entered the quote real world or job market or whatever, super, yeah. super helpful. But then more broadly, what it means for curriculum and all of that is, is probably another conversation. Totally. Um, but yeah. it's, it's cool because I just want to tease out. Obviously, there are benefits for individuals. I'm looking at this from the perspective of, you know, future of work where, um, it's full of uncertainty. It's hard to know 
what to do. It's hard to trust that things are going to work out. Again, 37 jobs, love that. That is going to be more the norm moving forward. But we're still in this environment in which it's just hard to know what's going to happen. And so for all of the things that you can't control around that future of work, taking ownership of your portfolio is one that you can. And so I always like to remind people, whoever you are, whatever age, however much you've worked or not, jobs or not, salaries, titles or not, everyone on the planet has a portfolio already. You may just not have realized it. And secondly, unlike a job, which I always have to break it to people, if someone else gave you a job, even if you love your job, even if you're good at it, even if you'd like to do it forever, if someone else gave you a job, that job can be taken away. Yeah. And in contrast, a portfolio, yes, you'll need to adapt. And the whole point of a portfolio is to grow and evolve it over time. No one can ever take your portfolio from you. It is yours. You're responsible for it, but it is yours and it allows you to craft a professional identity that speaks to you. Wow. So maybe my suggestion to the Pepperdine dean that they should fire the career services employees, divide their salaries by the number of students and issue all of us a refund probably wasn't, you know, so stupid after all, although it didn't win me any points with the career office. (laughs) They should have invested that money in helping all of you develop your portfolios. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So not a refund, just a reinvestment. (laughs) Let's finish by talking about this whole idea of letting go of the future. Uh, you say the future is only a concept. We can never truly know what it will be. True history is an amazing teacher, yet today's changes include factors that are new to the human experience. For the most part, surprise and unknowability don't show up in today's models. And I, you know, I wanted to, you know, pick that quote in particular because, you know, our, our previous roommate who just moved out is incredibly future oriented. He doesn't like looking at the past because it's painful, but um, he lives constantly in the future. And I always, mm-hmm. you know, as a surfer, my my metaphor for this is that, you know, when you're surfing, you live in the moment, but keep your eyes on the horizon. But how do you think mm-hmm. about this? Like, How do you get people to let go of a future? Because the thing that there's one other quote that really always came back to me, and it was uh, we're talking with Terry Cole, who was uh, wrote a book on, on boundaries. And I was asking her about love and relationships. And I was like, hey, I'm not married, you know, which much the dismay of my Indian mother. And she said, <laughs> you know. When I let go of the way that I thought it was supposed to be, I was able to open myself up to all the ways that it could be. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so very um, deliberately, I phrase this as let go of the future, as in like there is one singular future that we can control and predict and engineer and, oh, hey, by the way, I need that future to go my way this way. And if it doesn't, bad, you know, and for some people, and if it doesn't work out that way, I'm going to unravel or I'm going to be really anxious or whatever. And so it is this need. And people ask me all the time, they're like, you're a futurist. You can't say let go of the future. Like you're not allowed, <laughs> right? And I'm kind of like, hold on, let me explain. I could have made it a little bit longer and said, we need to let go of the obsession we have with predicting and controlling, again, the future. And rather, we need to open ourselves up to many different possible futures. So exactly, it's this letting go so that we, letting go of what we really needed to go this way in order to actually create space and breathe oxygen into all the different possible futures that could happen. Because right now, nobody on the planet can predict or control the future. We can only 
control whether and how we contribute to a future that we'd like to see. We have no guarantee of the outcome, but so many people are twisted up, just just making themselves so uncomfortable and putting themselves under so much stress because the future has to go this way. And if it doesn't, oh my God, all hell is going to break loose or whatever, or I'm just going to be unhappy. And yet the fact is a, a zillion different futures are possible to play out today. And, you know, we think about futures just holistically. And so it's this shift from needing to predict to being able to prepare. It's the ability to let go. And so I always have to tell people, I am not talking about giving up. I am not talking about failure. And I'm also not talking about not having goals or not striving or having dreams for the future. Absolutely strive and set goals and have big plans and all of that. I love a friend of mine put it uh, beautifully because he was really struggling with this. He's like, but my whole persona, like I like to really predict the future. You know, he's like, I, I like to know what's going to happen or think I'm going to know what's going to happen. And he said, I get it. You're not saying don't strive. You're saying get out of striving's shadow. And I love the way he put that because it's this get excited, do as much as you can to invest in the kind of future you'd like to see. But you have to let go that that one future as you would like for it to be is going to be the future because the chances are very good it's not. And save yourself from all of that kind of like wrestling with it and instead cast out many different possible futures and then do what you can to prepare for all of them in a way that actually uplifts you and brings futures that are better than you could possibly imagine into the fore as well. And just a side note here, quite funny because um, what I'm describing here, this will like imagine many different possible futures. It's in the world of futurism, it's known as scenario mapping or scenario planning. And it's a tool that's quite commonly used by futurists. But what I realized is that without knowing the term or knowing even what futurism was, right in the kind of coming full circle, in the immediate aftermath of my parents' deaths, um, I found myself doing this exercise every single day, which was, holy crap, I have no idea what my, what's going to happen to my life on any metric, right? The whole, the, 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 the earth beneath me had shifted and had fallen away and I was just trying to catch myself. So I was like, I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, what do I do? And I was like, well, I think imagine all the different things that could happen. And to your point, Trini, this is funny. Like I was like, maybe I'll get married. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll have kids. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll live in the United States. Maybe I'll live somewhere overseas. Maybe I'll like, you know, mapping out everything under the sun. And I thought, if I can just get myself to each of these scenarios, to a place where I can see myself, I can see myself surviving and, and, and maybe even being happy in that scenario, then I'm going to be fine. And it was this daily exercise of walking myself through all of these very different things could happen. But in each case, I would be okay. That what I realized at the end, it made me feel like, wow. All these different things could happen. Like, let's go. Like, let's, let's, let's lean into life, which was very different. You know, I could have taken a different tack after my parents' death and been like, if X doesn't happen, then basically all hell is broken loose. Um, and that didn't happen. And so it's one of those tools that's again accessible to anybody and you can do it about your organization and strategy and all that. You can do it about your life. And so. 
I love that because that's what I'm talking about, letting go of the future in order to allow many different possible, beautiful, amazing futures to emerge. Wow. Um, well, I think that makes a very fitting end to a conversation that probably <laughs> yeah. could have lasted five hours. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews on The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, authenticity. That when you are unmistakable, you're unmistakably you. I think there's this, if you're authentically you, no one can mistake you for somebody else. Nobody can, 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 uh, you know, not see you for who you are. So there's some piece about the individuality and authenticity of how you show up in the world. Mm. Amazing. Um, this has been one of my favorite conversations I've probably had in 10 years of doing this. Um, I can't thank you enough for join, taking the time to join us, to share your story, uh, your wisdom, and your insights with listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your book, your work, and everything else that you're up to? Thank you so much. It has been a joy. No, my heart, my heart is still like bursting out of my, out of my rib cage. It's great. Um, so for all things flux, book, superpowers, all of that, head to fluxmindset.com. Um, for all things social media, I have not discovered anyone else in the world, amazingly, with my name. So April Rinney, um, on all social media and also my personal website is aprilrinney.com. We did not talk about it today, but, um, the main reason people go to my aprilrinney.com website at the moment is for my handstands. So that's where you go. <laughs> Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. With the McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply, not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.